noon on the first Monday of the month so it's book choice on Fine Music Radio right here at the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town I'm Cindy Moritz standing in for Gory Bowes-Taylor And I'm Matabatabahatebe Welcome to the show Cindy We have a great bundle of books today Beverly Ruiz Muller gives joyful voice to Vox by Christina Dalcher which she found very readable Committed conservationist John Hanks wonders whether The Last Elephants by Don Pinnock and Colin Bell really are the last elephants. From last to the next as Vanessa Levenstein chats to Mitch Album about his sequel to The Five People You Meet in Heaven, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven. And Nikki Farrelly comes up with a bundle of great reads just right for the fireside or the electric blanket. Melvin Minnar chooses two very different books for those of us who thrill to language charm. And Cindy Morris, which is you, reviews written in history, letters that change the world, a book for those of us who are in a feast for, of history. We hope that you stay with us for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two copies of Mitch Albom's latest book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven. Beverly Rosmiller, you've given joyful voice to Vox. Bad things happen to women when extremists take control, and not just by those that we think are the bad guys. What would happen if the men in charge, and I use that sexist phrase deliberately, took away the one thing that distinguishes humans from all other species, the use of speech? I've never really thought about it, but we should, as Vox which is Latin for voice, by Christina Dalcher, reveals in her deeply disturbing and enraging novel, following similar dystopian footsteps such as Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid. How many words do we speak a day? More to the point, how important are those words? Not only instruction, information, the essential ingredients of negotiating our daily lives, but also the languages of love and connection. There's women who read nursery stories to their sleepy children, who whisper, I love you, as they fall asleep, who help with homework, and who pass on the personal library of family history and knowledge that helps us survive. The United States has, after the halcyon days of a black president, veered sharply to the right and voted in a fundamentalist who, along with his zealous colleagues, enact laws that gradually restrict women from working, from public office, from holding passports or bank accounts, and finally, from speaking more than 100 words each day. They were warned. Few thought it would actually happen. Well, where have we heard that before? A wrist counter is clamped on females, which literally word counts. One word more than 100, and you receive a painful shock several more, and you'll end up burned, and perhaps worse. Young girls, too, are victims. No more three R's for them. All they need is arithmetic to run a household. No books, no internet, only silence at table of mute women as husbands, fathers, and sons gobble and gabble away. Dr. Jean McKellen was once a senior brain scientist. Now she creates meals from memory, Cameras make sure that sign language and written notes are forbidden too. 
Her eldest son, Stephen, has bought into the propaganda that this enforces a traditional society where gender roles are stereotypical and everybody knows their place. Except, knows Jean, it does not. It is historically inaccurate, and you don't need muscles to have a bright brain. Also, Christine Dulcher evokes the incredulous rage that should arise from the premise of this interesting novel. Then the unexpected happens. The sitting president's brother has a brain calamity, and she is asked to help complete a drug trial to save him. But is this reprieve from the silent world she has been imprisoned in really what it seems? In case you think this is all just fantasy, consider that in many conservative places of worship, women are not allowed to speak and certainly cannot become bishops, let alone the Pope, or imams, or rabbis. In supposedly civilized Switzerland, women were not allowed to vote until 1971. Consider a place in which the voices of half those who belong in it, not taken seriously, or even punished. Are we really living in a world much better than Vox describes? The book flags a little at the end, though it is overall essential reading for its primary premise of how easily we lose our rights through lies that it is for the greater good. In fact, it is almost always for the good of the few. And then consider one more thing. It has taken me 600 words to tell you this. In the world of Vox, I would be dead by now. And right up front, here's our easy-peasy competition question where you can win one of two books. Our grand impresario Peter Turin is producing Macbeth at Theatre on the Bay from May 14th to June 2nd. Macbeth is one of this year's set works. FMR has asked listeners to please sponsor a loaner at just 100 rand a ticket. Do go to our website for full details. To win one of two copies of Mitch Albom's latest book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, tell us who wrote Macbeth, Enid Blyton or Shakespeare. Call us now on 021-401-1013. John Hanks and Are They the Last Elephants? John Hanks, a beautiful book. The Last Elephants, are they? Well, Colin Bell and Don Pinnock have come together to compile a very big book of 488 pages and 42 chapters written by 40 contributors with outstanding photographs of African elephants and their landscapes, some of the best I've ever seen. The main reason this book was produced is clearly stated on the fly cover, and I must quote this in full. It says, We hope the book will fulfil three wishes. Firstly, that readers from around the world will enjoy these compelling elephant accounts and beautiful photographs. Secondly, that the delegates to the CITES Conference of the Parties in Sri Lanka use it to make wise and informed decisions to close all the loopholes in the ivory trade. And thirdly, that countries receiving and using both legal and poached ivory, primarily China, Vietnam, Laos and Japan, ban and strenuously police its trade and use within their boundaries, actively pursuing and arresting syndicates to drive the cruel poaching tsunami. End quote. What a pity that the book has the most unfortunate title of The Last Elephants and a whole page devoted to one quote 
from His Royal Highness Prince William, which says, and I quote again, I fear that the African elephants will have disappeared from the wild by the time Princess Charlotte turns 25. The princess will be 25 in 2040, just 21 years from now. For Bell and Pinnock to spread such irresponsible nonsense to support their efforts to influence the forthcoming CITES meeting and to close down the legal and illegal trade does not help the promotion of realistic strategies to concern African elephants. The whole of Africa, and many people are surprised to hear this, has at least 400,000 elephants, with 130,000 in Botswana, 82,000 in Zimbabwe, 43,000 in Tanzania, 26,000 in Kenya, and at least 19,000 in South Africa. Now, I'm not denying the poaching of ivory is a serious problem, but to talk to responsible and knowledgeable conservation staff in any of those five countries and tell them that a new book on elephants has predicted that all their elephants will have been killed by 2040, I guarantee you that they will shake their heads in disbelief. They will also point out that the percentage of tuskless females is increasing in many places, as noted in one of the chapters by James Curry, to well over 50% in some of the protected areas, and surely these animals will never be a target for an ivory poacher. Now, I do not for one moment doubt the sincerity and the concern of the contributors about declining elephant numbers, but with few exceptions, Michel Henley being one, far too little attention in this book has been given to one of the main additional causes of this decline, namely human population growth. This year, the population of Africa will reach 1.3 billion. And according to the latest United Nations projections, grow to 4.5 billion by the end of this century. With levels of land transformation and deforestation linked to increasing poverty, declining food security and unemployment, this is a very serious concern. A very recent study from the University of Groningen highlighted the changing faces of Africa. From an analysis of 40 years of data, the study concluded that wildlife in the world-renowned Serengeti Mara is being squeezed to the core by increasing human activity and in just one decade a 400% increase in the human population resulted in a 75% decrease in the wildlife population accompanied by a dramatic increase in human-wildlife conflict. In most countries in the continent, the high rate of human population growth in the poorest countries will make it harder for those governments to eradicate poverty, to provide housing, hospitals and schools, and maintain even the most basic infrastructure, and of course virtually impossible to allocate funds for environmental conservation activities. There are already major shortfalls in financial support for virtually every national park and game reserve in Africa impacting on the number and quality of staff and their ability to maintain security and integrity of the areas under their charge. I'm equally concerned by the seriously incorrect statements made by Pinnock and Bell, some of which are given prominence in bold type. For example, on page 182, they state, Despite the misinformations put out by those who stand to profit from the trade in wildlife, CITES trade bans can and do work.
Rhino poaching was halted in just one year when all the rhino horn consumer countries implemented the full CITES trade ban regulations. With no market and no trade, poaching dried up. End quote. The reality, of course, is totally different. Since the CITES trade ban of rhino horn in 1977, when all rhinos were placed on Appendix 1, it's estimated that more than 100,000 rhinos have been lost to poaching. And 23 of the 33 countries in Africa have lost all of their rhinos. Trade bans have never worked in the past, and there's no reason to think now that they will stop ivory or rhino poaching. The worst approach in soliciting support for any appeal is to exaggerate or make false claims. In referring to escalating elephant poaching, Colin Bell makes the statement that campers had their tents trashed and vehicles smashed by angry elephants. He says many campers. Many? Really? I'm also concerned by the continued praise for the burning of ivory stockpiles. Dr. John Ledger, who is the Associate Professor of Energy Studies at the University of Johannesburg and a former director of the Endangered Wildlife Trust, summarised the folly of this when he wrote, and again I quote, by burning all that ivory, Kenya and the animal rightists who persuaded that country to perpetuate such a terrible deal have contemned many thousands of living elephants to the slaughter by poachers to supply the callous traders who live in the sewers of the underworld and do not care about elephants or Africans for that matter. Much has been made of China's undertaking to stop internal trade in ivory raising more infantile comment from animal rightists, ignorant politicians and armchair economists that the demise of the ivory trade is about to happen. Experienced China watchers know that there is a very big difference between what China says and what China does. End quote. Most of the contributions in this book ignore the excellent record of elephant conservation by those countries supporting sustainable use where real benefits accrue to local communities living close to or with elephants. Namibia, for example, has an outstanding record of community-based natural resource management programs. And in that country, elephant numbers have increased from 7,600 in 1995 to 22,700 in 2015. Elephant populations are also increasing in South Africa, and there are today too many elephants in some of the smaller reserves. Far from being the last elephants and about to disappear, these populations have to be managed to stop them destroying their favoured food types. In one chapter, Richard Finn and Timothy O'Connor have recognised this and referred to the need to manage these populations through contraception, translocation or culling. It is one of the very few references in the whole book to the need to manage elephants in the option of sustainable use of any elephants, it's conspicuous by its absence, although Clive Stockhill does refer to the benefits of Zimbabwe's communal area programme for management of indigenous resources, known as campfire, with benefits coming from consumptive and non-consumptive tourism. Some of the authors have at least recognised the importance of the survival of elephants through benefits accruing to local communities, but how these benefits are generated and the options for sustainable use are largely ignored. The compilers should take note of the words of the new president of Botswana, Dr. Masisi, who was commenting on the criticism his country has recently received 
when it moved to reintroduce elephant hunting and management of its very large elephant populations in response to urgent requests by rural communities who'd been adversely impacted by the hunting ban introduced by his predecessor and by escalating human-elephant conflicts. The president said, and I quote, It bamboozles me when people who sit in the comfort of where they come from and lecture us about the management of species they do not have. End quote. The compilers of The Last Elephants should have heeded similar advice before selecting the contributors to this book. 39 of the 40 are white, and there's only one black person, and not one of them is living in a rural community having to deal with large and dangerous elephants on a day-to-day basis. Enjoy the book for its great photographs, but please read the text critically and with an open mind of alternative options for making sure that these are not the last elephants. The title again of the book is The Last Elephants. It's compiled by Don Pinnock and Colin Bell, published in 2019 by Straight Nature, and it sells for 490 rand.
lover's gift and the world stood still Then your fingers touched my silent heart and taught me how to Love is a many splendid thing sung by Danny Williams. So, Cindy, tell us what's happening up next. Vanessa Levenstein, the next person you meet in heaven, if that's where you're going. When one mentions the name Mitch Albom, it's usually met with the warm response, Ah, Maury. Tuesdays with Maury remains one of the top-selling memoirs of all time. This was followed by The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Now, 15 years and many books later, Mitch has written the much-awaited sequel, the next person you meet in heaven. Joining us today in studio for Book Choice is author Mitch Album. Welcome to Fine Music Radio. Hello, thanks for having me here. Your first love was music. It was. Do you work with music playing in the background? No, because I am so interested in music that it's a total distraction. I find myself singing along with whatever it is or thinking about the chord changes. So, no, I can't do it. It takes me away from I love to listen to music, but never when I'm writing. <laughs> a lot's happened in your life over the last 15 years. You've experienced great love and also profound loss. How did this influence the second book? Well, the first book, The, ne- the Five People You Meet in Heaven, uh, was about an old man who dies uh, trying to save a little girl from an accident in an amusement park. He pushes her away from a ride and that's falling, and he dies instead of her. And he goes to heaven thinking he's a nobody and nothing, and he meets five people in heaven. That's my conceit, that you meet five people when you first get to heaven. And each one of them tells him a story about an interaction they had on earth that changed his life forever and their life forever. And by the end, he finds out that this insignificant life that he thought he led actually was very significant. Many people since that book came out have asked me, well, what's the next level of heaven. That's the first stage of heaven. What happened to Eddie? What happened to Annie, the little girl he pushed out of the way? And I, you know, for many years, I just said, well, use your imagination. But as you mentioned, I suffered in a in an 18-month period. I lost my mother, my father, and a little girl that we were had adopted and raising as our own from an orphanage I operate in Haiti. So that was a lot of loss in a short period of time. So my mind was sort of back in heaven uh, and hoping that they were all there together. And I thought, well, maybe this is a time to sort of see what happened to the little girl. My mind was also on little girls. And uh, see what happened to the little girl that Eddie pushed out of the way. And that became the basis for the next person you meet in heaven. And that's so clear. You so beautifully portray the relationship between a parent and a child. That love, that bond, and the complexity between the parent-child relationship. Yeah. Well, they're not always perfect, but they are unique. And uh, there is no security like the security you get from your parent, and there is no love like the love that you have for your child. And so that very much infused the next person you meet in heaven, as well as another book I have coming out later this year. So, yeah, and it's been very well received in the States. A book came out in, um, I think, October of last Mm -hmm. year, and this is about Annie growing up. And when she sort of goes on her own heavenly journey, having spent a life thinking that everything she does is a mistake, because, of course, when she was eight years old, she made a mistake that cost a man his life. 
she goes to heaven and finds from her five people that all these mistakes that she thought she made actually were not mistakes at all. They they all led to things that were important in her life. And, of course, one of the five people that she meets in heaven is Eddie mm. from the first book. Mm. And so we come full circle on that tale. Mm. All the pieces of the puzzle fit right. together. You help people make sense of death. You help people make sense of life. Do you find your readers' expectations a pressure when writing your books? Hmm. Uh, no, not the readers' expectations. I think the industry's expectations are harder uh, because everybody expects you to be selling at a certain clip. You know that that that's the business part of any art. I think you know, I'm sure musicians go through the same thing and movie makers. My readers have been great. I mean, I I, I span a lot of different genres. I write in nonfiction mm -hmm. and in fiction. I write kind of fantastical fiction like like this. I mean, it takes place in heaven, and I've written some that's really based in uh, in real life, like the book for One More Day, or even a, a big novel about music that we're making into a movie now called the, the Magic Strings of Frankie Presto. And I found that my readers are willing to go with me um, wherever I go, and I you know I, I guess that's because pretty universal in all of them are the lessons that I learned in my first book, Tuesdays with Maury, from, that's a true story, about an old professor who was dying from what you call motor neuron disease, and he and I met every Tuesday for the last 16 Tuesdays of his life to sort of do a class in what's important in life once you really know you're going to die. And I, I always say that all the books that followed, you could trace back to Tuesdays with Maury. There's some lesson from Tuesdays with Maury that became the underpinning of whatever no, new book I've, I've written, and that's probably why my, my readers go with me. Which is my next question. Mm. In The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, you talk about a connected universe, yeah. and your universe has included an enormous amount of charity work. Will you share with us the ethos you learned from Mari that giving is living? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It came about from one of the Tuesdays where I watched so many people go into his office trying to cheer him up and they would come out an hour later in tears, but they'd be crying about, like, their divorce, their love life, their job, their whatever. And they said, well, I don't know. I tried to cheer him up, but uh, after five minutes, he started asking me questions, and then he, I started telling him, and then more questions. I started, the next thing I know, he was comforting me. So I went in, and I said, I don't get it. You know, you're dying. You can't move. You finally hit the mother load of sympathy. You know, why don't you take advantage of it? And he said, Mitch, why would I take from people like that? Taking just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And it's a profound sentence, and I've never forgotten it. It rhymes, so it's easy to remember. Giving makes you feel like you're living. And I really have found that to be true. The times that I've taken in life, I've earned money, I've, I've bought things, it's very uh, ethereal. It disappears very quickly. The times that I have given, you know, I operate an orphanage in Haiti. You mentioned my charity work. That goes on forever. It's so enriching. It, it, it makes you feel so good about everything. And so I've, I've taken that lesson to heart. It started with Maury, uh, but I've really infused that into my life, and I try to infuse it into my writing. And there's a new book coming out, which mm. actually starts with the orphanage in Haiti. Yes, that book will come out at the end of the year. That's a true story. It's been the hardest book I've ever written. Uh, it's a, I have 47 children that we raise in Haiti. I'm there every month. And one of those 47 was a little girl named Chica who was born three days before the earthquake. Her house collapsed on the third day of her life, and she slept in the sugarcane fields from that night on. Eventually, she was brought to us. She was a bossy, funny, loud kid. And at five years old, um, she developed a brain tumor. 
very, very rare. And we brought her to America and basically adopted her as our little girl and then spent the next two years traveling around the world trying to find a cure. And that experience of becoming parents for the first time for my wife and me in our 50s with this girl who didn't look like us, didn't come from the same place, wasn't of us, didn't have the same skin color, but yet we could not have been more of a family than we were for those two years. And I, I write the story of what I learned from all that. And it's funny because it was 20 years almost to the to the month that she came to live with us that I had gone to visit Maury. So 20 years earlier, I went to an old man and sat alongside him while he was dying and learned about life. And 20 years later, a little girl came into our lives and I spent two years with her learning more about life than I than I ever could have. So I seem destined to be in between people who can teach me, although tragically in both cases we lost both of them. But as I say in the book, you don't lose a child, you're given one. And for whatever period of time you get that child, you're blessed. And the book's called Chica. Chica, that's her name. And we'll look forward to reading it. Yeah, thank you. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Thanks Thank you. for all you give, and your books continue to give. So I know our Five Music Radio listeners will be looking forward to reading. The Next Person You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album, and later in the year, Chica. Thank you, Mitch. It's all been the best. a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our grand impresario, Peter Turin, is producing Macbeth at Theatre on the Bay from May 14th to June 2nd. Macbeth is one of this year's setworks. FMR has asked listeners to please sponsor a learner at just 100 rand a ticket. Do go to our website for full details. To win one of two copies of Mitch Album's latest book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, tell us. Who wrote Macbeth, Enid Blyton or Shakespeare? Call us now on 021-401-1013. Nikki Farrelly, you have a great bundle of good reads. The Tortoise Cried Its Only Tear by Carol Campbell. Carol Campbell has previously written about the Karikimensa of the Karoo in her books My Children Have Faces and Esther's House. The stories are a social comment on the Karikimensa, who are a marginalized people living endlessly nomadic, rootless lives on the brink of total poverty. They trek from place to place looking for odd jobs and grazing for their livestock. In The Tortoise Cried Its Only Tear, she adds a stronger element of folktale and myth, which enriches the portrayal of these people, who have been the Karoo's gypsies for many years. The story is set in the area surrounding Prince Albert, and involves Sina, determined to achieve a decent education and a better life. Butty, a wild, neglected child whose friendship with Sina is his only solace, and Cricky, the son of a now-vanished prostitute who is helped attend primary school by a well-intentioned neighbour. Their lives, their relationships with each other and with their community is set against the backdrop of the timeless Karoo. Campbell explores how a single small act of kindness can transform a life and by implication other connected lives until a whole community can feel the ripple effect of that single gesture and likewise how one violent act can change a community. The story also blends myth into social fabric in the form of the tortoise, a creature revered by Sina's father because it holds the wisdom of the land in its eyes. When a tortoise dies it sheds a single tear. This is a poetic image of momentous yet fleeting life against the ancient land, a theme carried out by the generations of lives of its inhabitants. Lyrical, thought-provoking and poignant. The Binding by Bridget Collins 
This is a gorgeous fantasy about the power of books to erase past memories and the love between two young men. In this world, books play a very different, almost mystical role. If a person has experienced great pain or grief, they are able to visit a bookbinder who has the ability to extract the memories and pain and store it in a book especially created for the person, which is then kept safe by the bookbinder. And if for some reason the book is destroyed, these memories will flood back to their now oblivious inhabitant. This almost shaman-like skill and the power attached to being the sole possessor of so many secrets is regarded with fear and prejudice by the common people in this world. When Emmett Farmer is summoned by a bookbinder to become an apprentice, the letter he receives is met with dread, but it gives Emmett the chance to escape from the peculiar tension he feels at home. He is suffering from an illness he can't identify, and the new quiet and secluded location with his master Seredith and the skills he begins to learn bring him some relief. The narrative skips between Emmett's present situation and the past with his sister Alta and growing friendship with Lucien Darnay. When he discovers there is a book with his name on the spine, we begin to piece the truth together, an original and beautifully conceived story. The Red Address Book by Sophia Lundberg Definitely a book for fans of Frederick Backman's A Man Called Ove. Doris is 96 years old and lives in Stockholm. She looks forward to weekly Skype chats with her grandniece Jenny in America. In order to provide Jenny with a bit of family history, she goes through her old Red Address Book given to her as a girl by her father. She tracks the names that have systematically been added and crossed out over the years and begins to write about these people, who they were, the roles in her life, the relationships, friendships and the love. These connections have long since passed, but Doris relives the experiences, her life in New York, in London as a model in Paris, and her experiences during World War II, and the story of the only man she loved and their bond. All these colourful chapters in her life are recounted. This is a gentle, heartwarming, if sad story, nostalgic but lovely, that waves the fleeting nature of time against the beauty of a life well lived. This is an absolute gem. It is set in a small town in Northern Carolina in the late 60s, where Kaya Clark lives deep in the marshland. She is abandoned by her mother and siblings as a young girl and left to care for a drunken, abusive and mostly absent father. Lonely and isolated, she turns to nature around her for solace. She's a sensitive, intelligent girl, and becoming finely tuned to the natural processes around her extends the need for mother's love to nature itself. But in addition to this, it is a coming-of-age story. Kaya meets and befriends two boys. One teaches her to read and write, and the other lands up offering her the possibility of a different life. Then a young man is found dead, and the locals suspect Kaya, who they refer to as the Marsh Girl. Although she's considered strange by the small society, there are some people who look out for her, such as the wonderful Jumpin' and Mabel. Owen's prose is beautiful and poetic, her imagery is exquisite and the characters are gorgeous. Just around the corner Where 
Colonna. When you keep me in the corner, just waiting for you. Now Venus was noted for a Charles. between us, you're cuter than Venus, and what's more, you. Love is just around the corner, sung by Track 5. Sidi. Melvin Minar, you've read two very different books, both with lovely language. Two books to celebrate autumn reading. Two very different short novels, but sharing the marvellous fallout of super-skilled writers, wordsmiths polishing the impact of words and sentences with panache, and who electrified prose well beyond its mechanism as a mere narrative tool. In other words, these are word-reader books for those of us who thrill to language charm. And to be honest, how can one not pick up a novel titled The Zulus of New York or the poetically challenged named Where Reasons End? The latter is by the 40-something American-Chinese writer Li Lung Li and the other by our own celebrated Zags Medar. Both have international careers of note written novels of import, but these new books mark departures of the expected. Both are about loss. Lee's highly acclaimed book, which takes its title, Where Reasons End, from a poem by the American poet Elizabeth Bishop, renowned for her word elegance, is an elegic contemplation of a mother who loses a 16-year-old son to suicide. It takes the form of a dialogue between the mother, a writer, and the dead boy, in life bright, talented, and different. Although the boy has a fictional name, the dedication in the book makes it clear that he stands in for Lee's son's own death, for which she as a writer explores all the reasons of the title in words, their delicacy of meanings, ambiguities, limits, and argumentative abilities. In other words, it's an artwork of words that deals or tries to deal with the unexplainable grief and loss. It echoes the power that Joan Didion unleashed in the Year of Magical Thinking and Blue Nights, the two memoirs of the deaths of her husband and daughter, 
The talented, empowered wit artist's ability to dig into the personal, explore the emotional, and sew up the wounds with prose. Like Didion's books, the densely personal provides the heft to a simple narrative of after-death as sentences crafted to precision chart the season of sorrow like poetry. There is a Christmas and even a dainty humor that shimmers between the sometimes hapless mother and precocious son. It is a gorgeous book. Zakspadar's book is about the loss of identity. His word skill is the neatness of his narrative prose, often buzzing with cinematic clarity. Well-drawn characters and set scenes pitched against archival history. He also has a way of shifting the realism of his people and their stories to the magical, tricking the reader, sometimes with subtle humor, into a wondrous imagined world. The story of the Zulus in New York, an edgy title if ever there was one, is about MP, born in KwaZulu in the mid-19th century as Mpeyinis Ntombi Mkezi, Battle of the Maidens, as his father called the beautiful boy. He lands up via London in New York as a performer in entertainment troops. MP, who once served the great King Tetsuayo, finds him in a strange place where New Yorkers stream to see the wild Zulus, savages from Africa. They dance, attack enemies, and eat raw meat. He dances, but only the beautiful classic Zulu dances, which is not what the crowd wants. Inside this squalid vaudeville world, he sees Dinky, the Dinka princess, and is mesmerized by her blackness, her teeth, her presence, but it is a love not to be fulfilled. Madara's unfolding of the mystery is both finely tuned and deeply moving at the end. He had constructed a well-paced narrative and chapters that span eight years at a time when the exotic was the highlight of public amusement brought by the likes of the great Farini, one of the original impresarios. Madar's history is woven with detail, giving a gritty grip to the novel. Towards the end, the story turns elegic as MP heads back to South Africa with his son from a white wife that left him for the circus years before. Lost was the years when he served in the Zulu kingdom. Lost is that Zulu kingdom, and now to only cheer of his time in New York, the princess as well. It's a great read.
When I Fall in Love, played by Ken Higgins. I like that. Thank you for that, Rick. And uh, Cindy, you reviewed uh, Written in History Letters That Changed the World. Let's hear what you had to say. I'd be lying if I told you I didn't judge this book by its cover. A patchwork of gold embossed and blue and white envelopes are the stunning visual representation of Simon Sebag Montefiore's latest work, Written in History, Letters That Changed the World. Montefiore is a well-regarded and prolific writer and documenter of history and fiction, whose work includes the international bestsellers Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, Jerusalem, the Biography, Catherine the Great and Potemkin, and the Romanovs. His latest offering celebrates the great letters of world history, creative culture, and personal life. In his introduction to the collection, Montefiore writes... Nothing beats the immediacy and authenticity of a letter. Letters are the literary antidote to the ephemerality of life. Goethe thought them the most significant memorial a person can leave. The art of letter writing faded with the advent of the first telephone and then the electronic communication tools which encourage brevity and are often fleeting. Says Montefiore, I saw it myself when I was researching the Stalin archives. During the 1920s and 1930s, Stalin wrote long letters and notes to his entourage and to strangers too. But when a secure telephone line was set up, his letters abruptly stopped. All of which makes the anthology such a valuable window into the varied worlds of people who lived fascinating lives. Rulers of all types, empresses, actresses, tyrants, artists, composers and poets. Montefiore has sorted selected letters into themes, with love kicking off the collection before moving on to courage, destruction, disaster, and friendship, among other common human conditions. A brief history lesson precedes each letter, giving context to the exchange of words. Spanning millennia, read what Augustus wrote in the year 2 AD, Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1530s or Jacqueline Kennedy in 1963. As much as this is a treasure of preserved tradition, it could possibly encourage the resurgence of the art form. It transpires that letter writing is becoming more popular among those who value discretion in their communications. Says the author, politicians, spies, criminals and lovers have all learned many the hard way, that emails and texts can be read and exposed. They are never destroyed. On the other hand, they often vanish. Their flimsy impermanence makes them unsatisfying as a medium. They make life feel more transient, while letters make it feel more enduring. People are starting to use pen and paper again. Whether the writers of the letters chosen for this compilation intended theirs to be published and read years after they wrote them, we don't know. Anyway, they offer a revelatory glimpse into the lives and times of the people who made history, humanizing the stories that so often fall into the realm of cold facts and figures, and enrich our lives in the here and now. The most exciting news, if you want to meet and hear from the author himself, is that he's going to be at the Franschuk Literary Festival, happening from 17 to 19 May. Kicking off with a masterclass in written history before taking part in panels on other topics. He'll then be in Grahamstown for a book event before taking part in the Kingsmead Book Fair in Johannesburg at the end of the month.
If you're up for a feast of history, Simon Sebag Montefiore will be your guy. And if you can't make any of the events I've mentioned, do treat yourself to a keepsake copy of Written in History, Letters That Changed the World. It enriches and enlightens. I love those dear hearts and gentle people who live in my hometown because those dear hearts and gentle people will never ever let you down they read the good book from friday monday that's how the weekend goes i've got a dream house I'll build there one day with picket fence and rambling roads. I feel so welcome each time that I return That my happy heart keeps laughing like a clown I love those dear hearts and gentle people who live in love in my I love those dear hearts and gentle people who live in my hometown because those dear hearts and gentle people will never ever let you down. Good book from Friday Monday. That's how the weekend goes. I've got a dream house. I'll build there one day with picket fence and rambling roads. People. Definitely lots of love to the Hero Five Music Radio. That was I Love Those Dear Hearts and Gentle People uh, sung by Harry Curtis and I Love Those Dear Hearts and Gentle People who listen to Fine Music Radio 11.3 and of course my co-presenter today, Cindy Moritz. And that's it then. It was good to be with you all. Congratulations go to today's winners, Juanita Arnold and Melville Silk. We'll contact you later to arrange delivery of the next person you meet in heaven, your prize today for entering the competition. It's matinee up next with Brendan Van Rain. The fabulous Franchuk Literary Festival is on from May 17 to May 19. Scores of authors, brilliant books, delectable debates. Book on their website, flf.co.za.
Thanks go to the terrific team to Rick Everett, Mwanda Lobi, Matabataba Radebi, and from me, Cindy Moritz. It's goodbye and good reading. Goodbye. No use leading with our chins. This is where our story ends. Never lovers, ever friends. Goodbye. Presents a Royal Shakespeare Company and Fugard Theatre production of John Carney's critically acclaimed new play, Cunene and the King. Hot off its world premiere at the Royal Shakespeare Company, this fiercely funny and deeply human play provides a fitting tribute to mark the 25th anniversary of South Africa's first democratic elections and is now playing at the Fugard Theatre. Directed by Janice Honeyman and starring theatre icons John Carney and Sir Anthony Sher, this remarkable production is not to be missed. Book now at thefugard.com. World-famous Truth Coffee presents Truth After Dark. This is a brand-new late-night dessert-only offering dining experience. Orchestrated by the Paris-born Michelin star pastry chef Kamal, you can enjoy a taste symphony delivered through a selection of aesthetic desserts, all paired with Truth Coffee Roasting's artisanal coffees. Truth After Dark is at Truth Coffee in Batonkan Street, Tuesdays to Saturdays from 6 p.m. to midnight. Bookings are essential. Book online at truthcoffee.com or message them on Facebook. Escape to Truth After Dark. Mm-hmm. 